The Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies presents the Pearl of Great Price Lecture Series, given by Dr. Hugh Nibley. Today's lecture is entitled, Treasures in Heaven. Here, just a couple of remarks on Revelation, which I think you'll find very much to the point. They're so nice and concise here. Uh, Paul Tillich, who is considered the most eminent Protestant theologian of our time, who just died recently, wrote, the loss of the prophetic traditions, talking about Revelation, remember, we're going on something else now, but this is this Revelation, belongs to the tragedies of Christian history, for it actually lost as far as, it actually was lost as far as the official church is in command. Notice, they lost that, and the greatest tragedy was that they lost Revelation. Since Paul Tillich, you know all about Paul Tillich? He was giving a very, very highly uh, funded lecture, an annual lecture, had been saved a lecture on resurrection. Years ago, somebody did this huge fund for an annual uh, lecture on the resurrection. And of course, Tillich uh, began his, his talk by saying, well, now, of course, we all know there's no such thing as a resurrection. Everybody ever laughed appreciatively. And then he went on from there. So this is the position they take. But Tillich just said, the loss of the prophetic tradition belongs to the tragedies of Christian history. It was actually lost, as far as the official concerned. And so now we read in McCasland, S.V. McCasland, who was a very eminent theologian, the return to the ideas of inspiration and revelation may be put down as one of the remarkable trends of our biblical scholarship in the last decade. That's in the 1950s. It wasn't until the 1950s, then it started coming back. Then, as I said, everybody started having the idea. They, they would burn you at the stake before. That was Joseph Smith's great crime, as we saw. American anthropologist and so forth, but he says the return to the ideas of inspiration and revelation may be put down as one of the remarkable trends of our biblical scholarship in the last decade. <laughs> and here is Hegge, W.J. Hegge, uh, writing on the Catholic Church. The title is the, the Flexibility of the Catholic Church, Revelation and the Development of Dogma. See, at this time, in 62, they were having an ecumenical council, and uh, how can we make changes in dogma if we don't get revelation, if we just do it by our brains, because people have been, have been uh, noodling this around for ages and come to the different conclusions, are we any better than they? Well, without revelation, we're not going to get anywhere. So he entitles his article of flexibility, we can have it after all, you see, and the development of dogma. He says, after all, revelation might be possible after all. There's a concession for you. Uh, and here, uh, the ministers ask, H.A. Kelly, D.D. McIntyre, they, they held a big uh, meeting of all Protestant ministers, and the problem was this, the silence of God. How is it to be explained? Why doesn't he reveal himself anymore? Why is God silent now? Well, anybody that mentioned that God wasn't silent anymore was in real trouble, remember, the last revelation ceased uh, with revelations. And so it goes. And here's another one uh, by Petuchowski, Revelation and the Modern Jew. They're coming back to it, too. The bull, the bull of 1950, the Pope declares that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary is established by our supplication to God. Etiam ad deum ad movimus preces. We have continually prayed to God, ac veritatis spiritus lumen invocamen, and we have invoked the spirit of light and truth, actoritata de <coughs> nostus ei Christus, and by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the holy apostles Peter and Paul, 
and our own authority, we now pronounce and declare as definitely revealed this doctrine that Mary was immaculately conceived. It wasn't until 1950 that he could say, now, it has now been revealed. Such a thing, I say, would, would get you to the stake in a great hurry a hundred years ago. Uh, and so it goes. Well, uh, so now let's get to something else, though. We have to move on here. And this is the... Uh, I don't know if we got it. Oh, we know that. This is the paradox we just encountered in Moses, where he tells us in the... Oh, I forgot my big text, but I got some little bit. Never, never be without a three-in-one, whatever happens. Be without a handkerchief, but never be without a three-in-one. But <laughs> uh, well, he says, but only, and Moses 135, he says, but only an account of this earth and the inhabitants thereof give I unto you. Then the next sentence, he says, for behold, there are many worlds, innumerable, and are they unto man? I'm only going to tell you about this one, and the next thing he says is that there are many others. Then he says in the next verse, Moses says, tell me concerning this earth, and then thy servant will be content. And the next word, God spake unto Moses, saying, how does he talk about this earth? The heavens, they are many. And as one earth shall pass away, so another shall come. He begins by telling there's not one. He says, you're going to leave that alone now. But then why, why not leave the other worlds alone, <coughs> but remember that they are there, he says. Keep them in mind. Well, why? Well, as Aristotle says, you can't understand anything unless you know the category it belongs to. There must be a genus and a species. That's why God is incomprehensible, because there's nothing to be comparing him with. He doesn't belong to any class. Everything, <coughs> houses, dogs, keys, floors, everything belongs to a class in which you find other things. You can classify it in that order and compare it with things most like it, and that's taxonomy, the thing that the biologists went around and around for so many generations. How do you define a genus and a species? They're still not defined, you know. What, what makes a species and what makes a genus, except they look alike. And if it looks like an elephant, call it an elephant. Eh? And uh, so they tell us, for example, that the shrew, little tiny animal, is closely related to the elephant, where other animals aren't. They look much more like elephants and so forth. But, uh, but you have to keep them in mind, as Aristotle says, to understand anything, you must understand the category to which it belongs, what it's like and what it's not like. And that's why God's incomprehensible. Everything else has genus and species. And if you understand this earth, you must understand it in the term of other planets. If it's unique like God, you're not going to get anywhere with it. Uh, the first thing to understand about this earth is that it's not the first world and not the last. So when he says about Moses, now I want you to learn about this earth, but first of all remember it's like many others, like unto the other worlds that we have hitherto created. In an endless line of them, it belongs to a category, it belongs to a species, it belongs to a family, it belongs to other things, and you're in a much larger picture. And why is that so important? As in the case of God, it's the only way we can avoid the absolute and of course, absolute is absolutely crippling and meaningless. When you say absolute, you've taken care of everything. When you say, how can such and such a thing happen? All you have to say is, God can do anything, and you've got your answer, see, which is no answer. This, the absolute God doesn't answer anything or get anywhere. <coughs> Neither will an absolute earth. And especially the problem of evil. Now, the ascension literature, there's a great literature of ascension, where, where the hero ascends to heaven, sees the throne of God, comes back and reports, and leaves a, leaves a record of it. The Ascension literature is a very important part of apocalyptic, and it's very large. And I'm not going to talk about it now, but 
An important theme of it, of the ascension, is you have, for example, the ascension of Elijah, you have the ascension of Paul, recently discovered, and uh, among the Jews you have the ascension of uh, Rabbi Ishmael, who took the place of Enoch, you have the ascension of Enoch, who was taken to heaven, you have the ascension of Abraham, the Testament of Abraham, and the Apocalypse of Abraham, especially the Apocalypse of Abraham. In fact, there's hardly a prophet or an apostle that you don't not, not have now an ancient record of an ascension when he went to heaven. And uh, when he goes to heaven, in the case of Enoch, for example, which is, which is the most important, that's the classic one, the, uh, the hero asks his guide, he always has a guide, the angel, whether it's Michael or someone else, uh, he sees, when he goes there, he sees a venerable man sitting on a throne between two gates. And the venerable man, sometimes he's described as Adam, sometimes he's described as Abel, uh, sometimes he is described as, uh, who else will judge the human race? Uh, I say Elijah, Adam, Abel, yes. But the judge is weeping, and then he laughs, and then he weeps, and then he laughs. This is found in so much in the ascension story. Why does he weep? Why does he laugh? Well, he laughs, of course, because of the spirits he's able to send as the judge. He tests them. He's able to send on to heaven through this door. It's a very ancient thing, remember. Uh, in the dream, uh, Virgil, Virgil writes about the ivory gate. There are two gates, the gate of ivory and the gate of horn. The gate of ivory leads to bliss and leads to heaven. The gate of horn leads to other, other things. And the same thing in Xenophon tells, way back Xenophon tells the story of Heracles at the crossroads. You come to the crossroads, the way of right, the way of darkness, and so forth. It's universal, the two ways, the doctrine of the two ways. But anyway, the reason he's crying, he's weeping, is that some people get by and go happily to heaven. And why is he weeping? because a lot of them must go to hell. What is the proportion? The proportion is this. Some say 7,000, some say 70,000. For every person who makes it to heaven, there are 7,000 or 70,000 who must be condemned to hell. That's the proportion in this world. So you wonder then, if God created the world out of nothing and all of a sudden and these creatures are his own, is that exactly just? Why shouldn't anyone be weeping that he's created only one person in seven or 70,000 to go to hell, uh, to go to heaven? All the rest are are denied anything but eternal damnation. They came into this world which is bad enough, and then that happens, yes? Uh, where do you get your figures, 77,000 doctors? Well, you ask them. That's the way it's given, you see. Seven, it's, it's some odds, you see, really odd. You could say seven to one as far as that goes. But at any rate, is it fair to send all these people who didn't exist before, you just made them what they are, uh, to send them to heaven? Uh, why did God make uh, a doomed and suffering race, make them out of nothing? Well, this doesn't make sense, you see. He's wholly responsible for what we are. <laughs> of course, so you get the, the well-known verses from the, uh, from the Ruby out again. O thou do, who didst man of baser metal make, and who with Eden didst create the snakes? He made all these things. For all the ill with which the face of man is blackened, man's forgiveness give and take. See, God made us of baser metal. Why shouldn't we sin? Uh, as he puts it in another verse. O thou who didst with pitfall and with gin beset the way I was to wander in, wilt thou then with predestination round and mesh me and impute my fall to sin? In the first place he made us of base metal and uh, prone to sin and so forth. And uh, you must forgive us that way. We can't, we're not to blame for it and we'll forgive you for making us so miserable and having to go through all that. But then he says, then why 
will you predestine us, following St. Augustine and so forth, to damnation before we're even created? This is what happens. See, these 7,000 are predestined at damnation. They're predestined to be damned, according to Protestant Catholic doctrine. Nothing else they can do about it. And then, wilt thou then, with predestination round and mesh me, he set the tracks for us. And then when you sin, you couldn't miss it, he says, ha, you sinned. See? <laughs> Here he sets a careful trap, he makes you a weak creature, he, he watches you walk into the trap and he catches you and says, you sinned. Uh, well, that doesn't seem fair. And this, this is the problem of evil, one of the problems that's never been solved. So our existence as a one-act play, in other words, makes no sense. All the critics, uh, as Oedipus agree, agree on that. Oedipus didn't have a chance. He didn't commit a real sin. He, he didn't know what he was doing. He shouldn't have gone through that. Well, Sophocles sees all that, but they don't get the answer at all, which is in Oedipus Colonus. That wasn't the only existence Oedipus had or will have as far as that goes. Uh, Euripides chorus the same way. There's nothing you can do about this. This chorus mentioned before, five plays. He, at least five of the lasting 17 plays of Euripides, he ends with his same chorus. He says, Polon morphon ton daimonion, Polon deoptis chronophyseon. The gods take many forms and many unexpected things they bring to pass. O kaito dokethen to katalesto, and the things we'd always been taught to expect all our lives really don't go into fulfillment to katalesto. Kaito dokethen poron, kaito adikon poron therothion. And the thing you never would have expected, God finds a way for it to happen. <laughs> so how are you going to explain this tragedy, this chorus is saying at the end? There's nothing you can say about it. That's just the way it is. Or, loosely translated, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Though, <laughs> <laughs> no, life is unfair, as the big corporation says, when it really rips you off. Well, we know it's unfair, but life is unfair. You're supposed to feel good about that, you know. Well, these aren't good, these aren't proper answers at all. <clears throat> so, the one act, the one act uh, drama isn't, doesn't account for things. As far as we're concerned, it is a one, it is, not a one-act play, it has a terrific background. It's always been going on, and it falls naturally, as all the ancient plays do, into three parts. You can see why, past, present, and future. You'll begin with the epic, which tells the story of a family, like, say, the Oedipus stories, the family of Labdicus, begins with an ancient curse way back in the beginning, but there was something before that, or the Prometheus uh, takes you back. This is the second generation, there's going to be a third. Prometheus tells us what happened, the first play, what happened, before in the council in heaven, and next what's happening here, and then what's going to happen hereafter. So you have first an epic, a great epic, an epos. You see, an epos is the broadest period of time. And then you present this particular slice of it, only a segment. You can only see a segment, but it's a great trilogy. It's three, three great plays. And you break the trilogy down into three plays. Of course, that's what it means, three plays. And each play is divided into acts. There should be three. I'll ask all again. Because the past, present, and future. Uh, the past, present, and future prescribe the general pattern of three. It doesn't have to be that. But this is what we nearly always follow. And each act breaks down into what? Scenes. A scene, you may have noticed from Shakespeare and so forth, is whenever the scene changes or an actor leaves the stage or an actor comes on the stage, then you have a new play. Then you have a new situation, a new group of, of, uh, of characters, a new uh, personas, uh, persona, dramatis personae, and uh, you have a new setting and a new scene. You go somewhere else and you have other people in it, so that's another play. Each of these are independent plays, yet they all begin to belong together. You can't separate them. So a scene, you come down right down to a monologue, if you want, to the monodia, but they're all the same. 
You cannot understand the scene. It's not going to make much sense unless you know the play it belongs to, unless you know the act it belongs to. Uh, you can't understand the act unless you know where it goes in the trilogy, and you can't understand the trilogy unless you know the big story, the epic. And the epic is ongoing. It always goes back to pre-existence. It always takes you back to the courts on high. This is the thing that's uh, that they, corrupted by the Greek poets for, for fun, of course, the nightlife of the gods sort of thing. Uh, we don't know what happened back there. But, but it's always the ongoing story, and of course this is what the Pearl of Great Price makes very clear to us. There's also the physical reality we must consider. Now, the Pope uh, has taken refuge in the Big Bang, for example. In 1955, he did that. It was the, uh, that's a singularity. But that's not satisfactory. Remember the singularity began with the Big Bang. I just was reading in uh, someone who said the, the hateful word singularity because you can't explain it. What happened, what was there before the Big Bang? All matter, all space was contained in one point that had no dimension whatever. Well, that's absurd. It, to say the least, it's singular. So they call it singularity, and it gives people a headache. <laughs> they don't like it at all. But you begin with a singularity, and uh, then comes the Big Bang. But the Earth doesn't show up for a long time. It doesn't belong to that particular phase. You have to go through a photon phase when there's nothing but light. Then you go through a hadron phase. You get hydrogen, helium and even heavier things form. Then you're back to leptin phase again, and then things go together. You go through various phases. You go through a, a galactic phase, then a stellar phase, then supposedly a biophase, some people suggest. But the thing is, the, the Earth didn't come along for a long time, and it's part of a, a very long process. And there must have been something before the singularity. This is a thing that Henry Eyring up at the U, a great scientist, a great uh, chemist, uh, talked a good deal about, of course. If all that stuff was compacted together, what jammed it together? Where did it come from? The same question. You haven't answered a thing that way, as far as that goes. Uh, well, the Pope wants singularity because it looks like creation out of nothing. Nothing there, and all of a sudden, the Big Bang. You know how things happen there. Uh, but the Earth isn't part of that show. I said, nor the stars, nor the galaxies. There may have been incomprehensibly long and varied background, but there was a background. They used to put it at 5.4 million years, four and a half million years, rather. And now, within the last 10 years, they've changed it to 15 and a half. And now they've more than doubled that, because they can see farther out now uh, with the new telescopes and, uh, and techniques. So now they've got it down to uh, almost 30 billion years. They've almost doubled it. And it goes on doubling all the time. Will it have any end? Well, uh, <coughs> uh, we've been told about some of it in our scriptures and so forth. <coughs> we told about the doctrina. Well, where do we find it? We found it in the Doctrina Arcana, the ancient teachings handed down by the rich. Now, what testifies to them? What kind of proof, what kind of support do you have to those ancient teachings handed down? Well, the best thing you have is using a comparative method here and using a statistical method. How come that Joseph Smith gets it right so often, gets it on the head so often? Because he came just at the right time. In the middle of the, fifth, in the 19th century, everything took a new course. Science took over completely, everything in humanities, uh, geology, geography, and everything else, uh, astronomy, and you get a different ball game. But Joseph Smith came before that, and he gave us the whole thing before he could have drawn on any of that stuff. If he'd come 20 years, just a generation later, just 20 years later, you could have said again and again, ha, he lifted that from this, or he got that from this, and so forth. Just as they say today, he got it came to pass from the Bible, because you find that in the Bible, too. And of course, he, in fact, every word in the Book of Mormon you'll find in the dictionary, there's not a single original thing there. <laughs> but that doesn't explain anything. But uh, 
There are, there was the council in the beginning and the plan, and that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the old documents. But there are scientific questions to be answered. We're not going to linger on them. We get trapped in them. There are two disadvantages. One, I don't know anything about it. Two, it gets so interesting, you get involved and you never get off, and the time is limited. And that's not our concern right now. But these we have to consider because we do talk about the creation. We have taken these member. We have accepted the literal interpretation. We have accepted a multiplicity of worlds and so forth. We have accepted all these, the things that bind us to pay some attention to science. Now, granted, all the answers of science are, as Popper tells us so very clearly, uh, they're all hypotheses and they're all tentative, uh, leading to other tentative explanations. Nevertheless, we are prompted by data, and that data must be taken into consideration. What about it? You say, well, now we don't know how many other worlds and so forth. Yet we do know something basic. There are other things out there. So we have then the uh, the uh, cosmological problem. The geological problem, the biological problem, and the, uh, well, it's historical as far as that goes. But those are the, the main ones that concern us in the creation business in which we need not linger. The, uh, but they're all treated very nicely in the Pearl of Great Price. That's why we mention them. Let's take the, uh, the cosmological problem. The, uh, the old record we were talking about, there's one thing that is on reserve that I would refer you to that shows what a remarkable knowledge of things the ancients had just taking it as science fiction. If they're speculating, they certainly have astonishing insights into things. And uh, so we're not going to talk about this, but we are. Uh, very briefly here in this article, Treasures in the Heavens, this you'll find on reserve. Um, and... Uh, it's called Treasures in the Heavens. But things have been going on all along. And that this is what the early Christians preached. They were very much taken up with this. That it is part of the larger picture. That the, the place has been seething with action long before our story begins. The, uh, the preoccupation with locus assumes a plurality of worlds and indeed our treasure text, we often find worlds, earths, cosmoses in the plural in the early Christian writings. And uh, still long said, one thing about this, it has massive footnotes, so you find plenty of references. Don't be suffering for lack of references here. Yeah, oh, scads of them there. It's only the fallen angels led by the blind, by the blind Samael, who is Satan, who insists, quote, we are alone and there is none beside us. In his vanity, you won't allow other worlds. To the sons of light, on the other hand, there has opened up the grandiose vision of worlds united in common knowledge of him who made them, exchanging joyful and affectionate messages as they keep faith with one another. Now this, this uh, is, is pouring it on here. This is from the, the uh, Mandaean books and the Odes of Solomon and the Twelve Questions, Mandaean and Coptic and Dead Sea Scrolls. You'll find this, these are quite, quite frequently mentioned here now. Uh, we won't refer to except once in a while. <clears throat> this is the way they talk. Here are these worlds, united in common knowledge of him, exchanging joyful and affectionate messages as they keep faith with one another in the common plan and talk to each other and establish, and establish concord, each contributing something of its own to the common interest. See, that's, well, we go on here. The members of the vast complex are kept in perfect accord by the sustaining word of God which reaches all alike 
since it possesses through the power of the treasure the capacity for traveling unlimited distances with inexpressible speed. So everything is coordinated and held together no matter how vast. The word is also the son who has betaken to himself, <coughs> betaken himself to the numberless hidden worlds which have come to know him. We don't know them about him. Numberless hidden worlds, we know nothing about them. As, as the Lord says, they are known to me. Here is wisdom and it remaineth in me for my own purposes and so forth. You don't. They are hidden to you. <coughs> angels with special assignments and marvelous powers of getting around who constantly go forth on their missions and return with their reports. That's a very common theme. We will return and report. Uh, <coughs> I kind of keep losing places here. 76. All then the very old writings here. <coughs> they go between between the people of the proof of 12. With all this perfect unity and harmony, the system presents a scene not of monotonous uniformity, as you might expect. <coughs> One star looks like level, much like another. We have a hundred elements. Everything is made of the same elements, no matter elements, no matter where you go. And uh, so isn't it very monotonous? Just more of the same, more and more and more worlds. <coughs> much satisfaction in that. Ah, no, there's an easy way out of that. Present a scene not of monotonous uniformity, but rather of endless and delightful variety. They are all different from each other, and he has not made one of them superfluous. There's not one too many because it's like anybody else. Hence, each one has good things to exchange <coughs> with its neighbors. <coughs> oh, accident, everything. That same Arthur, uh, uh, the, uh, the author, the inventor of the radar and so forth, you mentioned before, um, was uh, know him well enough he says uh, not thinking of Arthur Lovejoy he says if you had a million he calculated it's easy to calculate just use a little uh, uh, factorial here and you'll get the answer if you had a million computers this is playing a game of chess of checkers not chess which is infinitely more complicated checkers with just 16 pieces you see on the side. <coughs> if you had a million computers and each computer made a million moves a second, how long would it take to play all the combinations possible among your, your checkers? There's 16 checkers there. You had a million computers, and each making a million moves a second. That would take, well, 10 minutes. You'd do an awful lot of, it would take 300 billion, billion years for them to play all the possible games of checkers. 300 billion, billion years to play that many you can figure it out, it comes out very quickly. I mean, I just use the factorials and it comes right out uh, to play just a game of checkers. So don't worry about that. You see that we'll run out of combinations because given these elements, they, they can do all sorts of things with them. Look, uh, the, uh, the one that, uh, <coughs> that is used by uh, Fred Hoyle. Well, the 88 keys on the, on the keyboard. All your music comes from just 88 notes. All the melodies, everything else comes from just eight. Well, anyway, so they never get tired. A new creation there, at a new creation there is a reshuffling of incidentally, that's a quotation, the last one is interesting. And that's from Ben Sirach, one of the most old, venerable, and universally accepted of all, it belongs in the Bible, uh, Ben Sirach, uh, and it's in the Odes of Solomon, that's in the Ginza, it's in Mandaean Johannes book, it's in the Berlin Mandaean, it's in Epistle Sophia, the oldest, and best of all the Coptic writings. So this is a common teaching here. A new, at a new creation, there's a reshuffling of elements. That's what you'd expect. Like the rearranging of notes in the musical scale to make a new composition. 
It's even suggested, as we've noted, that old worlds may be dismantled to supply stuff for the making of better or new ones there. That's the one where you get the storm that's mixed up. This is how it happens. You said we'd already mentioned it here. The, uh, well, the stuff is mixed up. Beginning, yeah, here, here's the way it goes. With a very old Egyptian idea, recently examined by A.E.A. <coughs> Raymond, that the creation of the world was really a recreation by transforming substances that had already been used in the creation of other worlds. The Jewish and Christian apocryphal writers envisage a process by which the stuff of worlds is alternately organized into new stars and planets, and these new have served their time, scrapped, decontaminated, and reused in the world, as we know today. This world wouldn't exist if a star hadn't exploded. It had to explode after it had gone through its life cycle and done all the pretty things it should do. Bam, it was blown to smithereens. That alone produced the heavy elements that are necessary to make a world like this. So as one world completes its cycle, the whole stuff has to be recycled again into a new one and goes through the same process again. Uh, the Jewish teachers, according to H.L. Weiss, well, your stuff is constantly recycled in the tohu wabohu, which the Egyptians call the hu, of the Jewish teachers who saw the ultimate forms of matter, fire, and ice. It was either complete energy, as it is in the 14th period, when there's nothing but light, nothing but energy, no particles have any weight, no mass whatsoever, nothing but, but fire, or nothing but ice, when nothing moves. At the completion of this cycle of entropy, when everything dies down to a dead unit, nothing but a pile of ash, so it's either completely cold or it's completely hot. And these are the two, according to Jewish teachings, these are the two ultimate forms of matter. Likewise, according to the same authority, the world holocaust of the Stoics was merely a necessary preparation for the making of new worlds from old materials. The whole thrust of Weiss's book is that until the early Christian apologists in the fourth century, we find no trace anywhere of a doctrine of creation out of nothing. Well, we've seen that before. So, there's an interesting, in the Pista Sophia, uh, continuing the Egyptian teachings, the picture of the constant mixing, kerosmos, he uses the Greek word kerosmos, mixing up all the time, going on in the universe in which old, worn-out, contaminated substance, the refuse, storm, garbage, of worn-out worlds and kingdoms is first thrown out in the scrap heap, returned to chaos as dead matter. What do you do with it then? Then it's melted down in a dissolving fire for many years, in which all impurities are removed from it, and in which it is improved, using that word. It is ready to be poured from one kind of body into another. The whole process by which the souls as well as substances are thrown back into the mixing, another quotation, is under the supervision of Melchizedek, the great reprocessor, the purifier, the preparer of worlds. He takes over the refuse of a defunct world, or souls, and under his supervision, the five great archons, they're the five principles. They're always talking about the five principles, always the five is Egyptian too each one specializing in particular elements which they thus recombine in unique and original combinations so that no new world or soul is exactly alike. Well, they get it going by going into something like a spiral nebula. They spiral in it. Uh, well, now, in this full-blown plenierism, there is no waste and no shortage. If there were any superfluous or any lacking, the whole body would suffer for the worlds counterpoise one another like elements of a single organism. Hang together. The worlds go on forever. They come and come and cease not. They ever increase and are multiplied, yet are not brought to an end, nor do they decrease. Well, they, they took that answer to the three questions. Is the, is the universe expanding so slowly that it, gravity will finally take hold and draw it back together into another singularity? Is it growing so fast that it will go on, go on, on forever? Or uh, will it 
is it balanced at equilibrium so it'll get so large and never get any smaller? Well, this says it's, it's eternal expansion here. The, uh, yes, the uh, whole process thrown back into the mixing. It's essential to the plan that all physical things should pass away and so forth. Well, that's the way it goes. The mere mechanics are quite astonishing. The, oh here, we're going to a new world now. This is important too. The mere mechanics of the creation process described here display a truly remarkable scientific insight. For the making of the world, the first requirement we told is a segment of empty space, for there is space there, first of all, pure and unencumbered, and a supply of primordial matter, matter unorganized to work with. Those are the two things you need, according to, to this doctrine. Again, both of them very well documented here. So we will go down there, for there is space there, and we will take of these substances, and we will make a world. Yonder is matter unorganized. Mere empty space and inert matter, however forbidding and profitless things in themselves, disturbing and even dangerous for humans to be involved with, contemplating the mind is seized with vertigo and sometime and till some foothold is found in the void you go crazy. The order and stability of a foundation are achieved through the operation of the spark, the spinfell. The spark is very important. The spark is what starts this inert matter into life again. The spark is sometimes defined as a small idea that comes forth from God and makes all the difference between what lives, remember the thought of his heart, in the Shabako fragment, uh, in the Shabako text. It is conceived in the mind in God and then on the tongue of God, and that brought it about. But first, it, it is this idea that makes all the difference between what lives and what does not. I told this interesting statement in uh, the second Gnostic work here, and the vision of the vision of Kenos, that's very interesting. That uh, it was the prophet Zenos who gave the prophecy about the who lived between Moses and uh, and Isaiah, and he gave the prophecy about the vineyard and so forth. And remember in the book of Moses, it's Jacob who tells the story at great length of the vineyard. Right beginning of the book of Jacob in the book of Mormon. The book of Jacob tells the story of the vineyard as it was recounted by the old prophet Zenos says the same thing. Of course, Zenos wasn't discovered until 1906. So, Book of Mormon knows about Zenos, too. But Zenos says that. Uh, compared with these things are but a shadow, since it's the spark whose life moves all material things. It's the ultimate particle, the enos, from which came from the father of those who were without beginning. Emanates from the treasure house of light from which all life and power is ultimately derived. Thanks to the vivifying, organizing power of the spark, we'll call it that, we don't know anything better to call it, it's a very good one, because it's the electrical analogy. What is the spark that jumps the gap? Nobody knows. Uh, unsatisfied electron, I suppose. We find throughout the cosmos an infinity of dwelling places, topoi, either occupied or waiting for tenants. These are colonized by migrants from previously established toposes, topos a place in space, or worlds, all going back ultimately to the original center, the colonizing process is called planting. They always use planting. You will plant another world. You will plant, you will take the seeds down and plant them. You will plant Adam there and so forth. The planting and those spirits which bring their treasures to a new world are called plants or more rarely seeds of their father or planter in another world. Every planting goes out from the treasure house even as the essential material element or as colonizers themselves who come from a sort of mustering area called the treasure house of souls. Always there's that in-between places, which the early Christians called the refrigerium or the anapausis, the place where you stop and rest between worlds to, to a sort of pressure chamber. Customize yourselves. When you came into this world, you see, it was through a shock, and uh, the, the birth shock, and when you go out, you will be left 
in a pleasant garden, a greenhouse to rest uh, and uh, collect your senses and so forth and get ready for the next step, get over the get over the shock. Back in the old time of the ritual drums and so forth, you had the greenhouse for that purpose. So you pass from one act, one face to another, the actor goes to the greenhouse, where you rest, refresh yourself, and get ready for the next strenuous act that is to follow. These things run throughout everything. With its planting completed, the new world is in business. A new treasury has been established, and from which new sparks may go forth in all directions to start the process anew in ever new species. God wants every man to plant a planting. Nay, this is a very interesting quotation, incidentally. And one of one I noticed from it's from the uh, it's from the uh, that second mostic work I was mentioning before, and Raymond, and the Gospel of Philip. Oh, that's a good one. He says, uh, God wants every man to plant a planting. He has promised that those who keep his law may also become creators of worlds. Now that's a, a flat statement, you see. In, the earliest gospel we know, even earlier than the Gospel of Philip, after the New Testament. That's the Gospel of Thomas, uh, that's the Gospel of Philip. If you keep his law, you may also become creators of worlds he wants you to be. But keeping the law requires following the divine pattern at every point. In taking the treasure to a new world, the sent one, who follows on the hard on the heels of the colonists, he goes to teach them. See, the teacher is sent to teach Adam after he's in the world. He seeks nothing so much as complete identity with the one who sent him. Hence, from first to last, one mind alone dominates the whole boundless complex. Call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore, but you call upon God and God only in the name of the Son. Because each planting is completely dependent on its treasure house or home base, the system never breaks up into independent systems. It is a patriarchal order that remains forever identified with the Father <coughs> from whom all ultimately come forth. Well, we here on earth are not aware of all this because we comprehend only what we are like. So that's quite a system they had. Uh, they didn't work it out. They, they had it going in the early, among the early Christian and Jews societies. That's the cultural problem here. Now, the important thing to remember is that at all times, we only see part of the picture. And of course, that's the weakness. If you, here's a very interesting quotation on that in this book. Some of you may have it now. The uh, the Dancing Wooly Masters, it's required in, I think John Hales requires it in his, uh, Ed Gardner rather, Hales Gardner, in his course on, uh, on the physics. And this is the situation, you see. The general theory of relativity shows us that our minds follow different rules than the world, than the real world does. A rational mind, based on the impressions that it receives from its limited perspective, forms the structures which thereafter determine what it, but it further will and will not accept freely. Everything that goes into your world, every structure, is determined by what you've already accepted of it, and you'll be accepted that very early. And that limits you very much, notice. A rational mind, perfectly reasonable, based on the impressions that it receives from its limited perspective, forms structures, and you have to, which thereafter determine what it further will and will not accept freely. From that point on, regardless of how the real world actually operates, I thought it has nothing to do with the real world from that point on. It's ours. This is this doctrine of anthropism. This rational mind, following its self-imposed rules, following its own self-imposed rules, tries to superimpose on the real world its own version of what must be. Every scientist, every artist, everybody does that. You impose upon the real world, whatever it is, your own version of what it must be in view of your experience of what has gone on. Your experience is very li limited. So where does that get us? The important thing is, you see, that we are very limited here. He says in that regard, the, uh, 
We are the common denominator of all experience is the I that does the experiencing. You. This is, this is physics he's talking about. In short, what we experience is not external reality, but our interaction to it. This is a fundamental assumption of complementarity. <coughs> and then he tells us Niels Bohr, he quotes Niels Bohr, on the necessity of a final renunciation of classical idea of causality and radical revision of our attitude toward the problem of physical reality. We must make a radical revision of our attitude toward physical reality here. And then he says, what's happening then? The special theory of relativity and quantum mechanics have propelled us into unimaginably expansive areas of reality, areas about which we literally had not one previous idea. It's all different from what we ever supposed before. So we must prepare ourselves for all sorts of, of shocks and resent it, dig in our heels, because this is the structure I've already, I've already made. <coughs> if, uh, well, he talks about the energy and the pattern. Yes, here, uh, Max Planck himself, not one physicist, not even Ma Planck himself, when he discovered the famous Planck con as constant, which is so very important, even Planck himself wanted to accept the implications of Planck's discovery. And Heisenberg, the great Heisenberg, wrote about this quantum revolution. When new groups of phenomena compel changes in the pattern of thought, even the most eminent of physicists find immense difficulties. They don't want to change. For the demand for change in the thought pattern may engender the feeling that the ground is to be pulled out from under their feet. I believe that difficulties at this point can hardly be overestimated. You've got to pull yourself out into a wholly new situation. As Moses says, which thing I never had supposed. He starts out learning about reality he didn't know about before. Um, the powerful awareness lies in the dormant uh, lives dormant in these discoveries an awareness of the hitherto unsuspected powers of the mind to mold reality rather than the other way around <coughs> you know bacon see bacon as you just observe and the, f the phenomenon itself will tell you what to think and what to believe it the phenomenon itself will give you not only the theory it will give you the facts you just observe the facts and make no judgments keep an open mind and you will see things as they are that's the baconian theory and it is it sounds very very quaint today rather than the other way around. <clears throat> in this sense, we still hear it from people who think they're detached, impersonal, cool, objective observers. No, they're not at all. But rather the other way around. In this sense, the philosophy of physics is becoming indistinguishable from the philosophy of Buddhism, which is the philosophy of enlightenment. And so, the, uh, even though they are space-like, Separated, the state of the particle in area B depends on what the observer in area A decides to observe, what you decide to observe, that which he orients his magnetic field. What you decide to look at is what you will see. You decide what the universe is going to be uh, to look at and so forth. And so it goes on and on. Uh, thus, one has led to the new notion of unbroken wholeness. You are dealing with just one system, you see which denies the classical idea of analyzability of the world into separately and independently existent parts. Well, this gets rather rather mysterious when we start talking that way, doesn't it? And so uh, we get on to these uh, problems of the physical world. And again, the this takes to the geological problem. We've, we've talked a lot about cosmology. The main thing is the geological problem. Well, we have all two minutes, though. So.
But again, the, the whole thing in geology is that you never begin at the beginning. You always come in after the show has been going on a long time. That's what Tyard de Chardin showed. That, uh, can I bring that? Uh, yes, I did. Here, this is a recent from last August. Geographic gives a, gives a graphic picture of what the situation is here, where we come in. And uh, it will introduce us. Come on, it's supposed to unfold here. Yeah, this is it. It's one of these, these, oh, here, 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 here we go. It gives us this graphic picture here. So you follow the earth back, it goes back, 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 comes through all these phases. Then the interesting thing to notice is these billions of years ago, that a thing that had never been noticed before, as this last time, all of a sudden comes a mass extinction 650 years ago. Then, again, 230 years ago, comes a mass extinction of everything that was there. Then, 65 million years ago, that was the beauty. That's the one we learn about in the temple. That's the one we learn about in the Pearl of Great Price. That one between the Cretaceous and the Tertiary, 65 million years ago, when we're told, some of you may have seen uh, uh, Alvarez of Berkeley gave a, it was a documentary last week on this very thing. At that time, at least 95% of all life forms on Earth were completely wiped out and had to be replaced by totally new forms. We'll see why as far as that goes. And so, and then again, uh, <laughs> at the bottom, it has a very interesting thing. Today, it says, man-induced extinction. That's where we are now. You're going to get another one of those mass extinctions. But it makes this interesting remark in the beginning. This is this year's. It's just a, last August. It says, far more dynamic than ever imagined, our mother planet constantly renews her surface, changes her face in vast movements, hidden in time from our short-lived species. Now, space I see the whole business of old-fashioned evolution was that was just one steady, constant, unchanging rate and that accounts for everything. Now, space-age tools help explore the massive advances of crustal plates known as space-age tools. We must go into the outer universe to discover what's happening on home base. Space-age tools explore the massive advance of crustal plates and the creation of new landforms as we discover a new planet under our feet. I've created a new world like unto the other worlds that were hitherto before Adam. So Adam does find himself on the new world, but that doesn't mean there was nothing there before. Just as we find ourselves, he says, today, we find ourselves on a new world, and nothing else has been there from me. Some things may have held, held over, like the Sidicanthus or some freaks that shouldn't be found there at all, or living, uh, Cousteau is always blundering on things like uh, living gastropods that have no business <laughs> living after all those billions of years and so forth. But uh, these things we consider briefly, but they're given quite a play in the books of Moses and Abraham, and that's why it's right to consider them. Thank you.